Chapter Five of The Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Haley Pereira. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Five in which Cassandra goes to David with her trouble and gives Frail her promise. After his sleep on Hanging Rock, David, allured by the sunset, remained long in his doorway idly smoking his pipe and ruminating, until a normal and delightful hunger sent him striding down the winding path toward the blazing hearth where he had found such kindly welcome the evening before. There, seated tilted back against the chimney-side, he found a huge youth, innocent of face and gentle of mien, who rose as he entered and offered him his chair, and smiled and tossed back a falling lock from his forehead as he gave him greeting. This he is, Dr. Thring, Frail, who done me up this away. He allows he's going to get me well so I can walk again. How are you, sir? You certainly do look a heap better when you come last evening. So I am indeed, and you? David's voice rang out gladly. He went to the bed and bent above the old woman, looking her over carefully. "'Are you comfortable? Do the weights hurt you?' he asked. "'I can't say as they're right comfortable, but if they'll help me to get round again, I reckon I can bear it.' Early that morning, with but the simplest means, David had arranged bandages and weights of wood to hold her in position. She was so slight, he hoped the broken hip might right itself with patience and care more especially as he learned that her age was not so advanced as her appearance had led him to suppose. Now all suspicion of him seemed to have vanished from the household. Hoyle, happy when the fascinating doctor noticed him, leaned against his chair, drinking in his words eagerly. But when Thring drew him to his knee and discovered the cruel mark across his face and asked how it had happened, a curious change crept over them all. Every face became as expressionless as a mask. Only the boy's eyes sought his brother's, then turned with a frightened look toward Cassandra, as if seeking help. Thring persisted in his examination, and lifted the boy's face toward the light. If the big brother had done this deed, he should be made to feel shame for it. The welt barely escaped the eye, which was swollen and discolored, and altogether the face presented a pitiable appearance. As David talked, the hard look which had been exercised for a time by the gentle influence of that home had more than all by the sight of Cassandra performing the gracious services of the household settled again upon the youth's face. His lips were drawn and his eyes ceased following Cassandra and became fixed and narrowed on one spot. You have come near losing that splendid eye of yours. Do you know that little chap? Hoyle grinned. It's a shame, you know. I have something up at the cabin would help to heal this, but— He glanced about the room. What are those dried herbs up there? There is witch hazel yonder in the cupboard. Cass, you mount bile up some for the doctor, said the mother. Tell the doctor how come it happened, son. You ain't afeard of him, be you? A trampling of horses' hooves was heard outside. Go up, Garrett, to your own place, Frail. What you be biding here for? She added in a hushed voice but the youth sat doggedly still. Cassandra went out and quickly returned. It's your own horse, Frail. Poor beast. He's limping like he's been hurt. He's loose out there. You better look to him. Uncle Carew rode him down and left him, I reckon. Frail rose and went out, and David continued his care of the child. 
How was it? Did your brother hurt you? No, he never hurted me all his life. It were my own self. Cassandra patted the child on his shoulder. He can't be to tell how come he's hurted this way. He's that proud. It was a mean, bad, coward man fetched him such a blow across the face. He asked little son something, and when Hoyle never said a word, he just lifted his arm and hit him, and then rode off like he had pleased himself. A flush of anger kindled in her cheeks. Never mind, son. Doctor can fix you up all right. A sigh of relief trembled through the boy's lips, and David asked no more questions. You ain't going to tie me up that away, be you? He pointed to the bed whereon his mother lay, and they all laughed, relieving the tension. Naw, shrilled the mother's voice. But I reckon Dr. Mount take off your head and sit it on straight again. I wished he could, cried the child, no whit troubled by the suggestion. I'd bar a heap for to get my head straight like frails. Just then his brother entered the room. You reckon doctor can take off my head and set it straight like you care yours, frail? Again they all laughed, and the big youth smiled such a sweet, infantile smile as he looked down on his little brother that David's heart warmed toward him. He tussled the boy's hair as he passed and drew him along to the chimney side, away from the doctor. It's a right good head, I'm thinking, if it be set too for round. They is a heap in it, too, more'n they say is in mine, I reckon. He's getting too big to set that away on your knee, frail. You make a baby of him said the mother. The child made an effort to slip down, but Frail's arm closed more tightly about him, and he nestled back contentedly. So the evening passed, and Thring retired early to the bed in the loom shed. He knew something serious was amiss, but of what nature he could not conjecture, unless it were that Frail had been making illicit whiskey. Whatever it was, he chose to manifest no curiosity. In the morning he saw nothing of the young man, and as a warm rain was steadily falling, he was glad to get the use of the horse, and rode away happily in the rain, with food provided for both himself and the beast sufficient for the day slung in a sack behind him. "'Reckon you'll come back here this evening?' queried the old mother as he adjusted her bandages before leaving. "'I'll see how the cabin feels after I have had a fire in the chimney all day.' As he left, he paused by Cassandra's side. She was standing by the spout of running water, waiting for her pail to fill. If it happens that you need for me, anything at all, send Hoyle and I'll come immediately. Will you? She lifted her eyes to his gratefully. Thank you, was all she said, but his look impelled more. You are right kind, she added. Hardly satisfied, he departed, but turned in his saddle to glance back at her. She was swaying sideways with the weight of the full pail, straining one slender arm as she bore it into the house. Who did all the work there, he wondered. That great youth ought to relieve her of such tasks. Where was he? Little did he dream that the eyes of the great youth were at that moment fixed darkly upon him from the small pane of glass set in under the cabin roof, which lighted Frail's garret room. David stabled the horse in the log shed built by Dr. Hoyle for his own beast. For what is life in the mountains without a horse? Then lingered a while in his doorway, looking out over the billows of ranges seen dimly through the fine veil of the falling rain. Ah, wonderful, perfect world it seemed to him, seen through the veil of the rain. 
The fireplace in the cabin was built of rough stone, wide and high, and there he made him a brisk fire with fat pine and brushwood. He drew in great logs which he heaped on the broad stone hearth to dry. He piled them on the fire until the flames leaped and roared up the chimney, so long unused. He sat before it, delighting in it like a boy with a bonfire, and blessed his friend for sending him there, smoking a pipe in his honor. Among the doctor's few cooking utensils he found a stout iron tea kettle, and sallied out again in the wet to rinse it and fill it with fresh water from the spring. He had had only coffee since leaving Canada. Now he would have a good cup of decent tea, so he hung the kettle on the crane and swung it over the fire. In his search for his tea, most of his belongings were unpacked and tossed about the room in wild disorder, and a copy of Marius the Epicurean was brought to light. His kettle boiled over into the fire, and immediately the small articles on his pine table were shoved back in confusion to make room for his tea things, his bottle of milk, his corn pone, and his book. Being by this time weary, he threw himself on his couch, and contentment began. His hot tea within reach, his door wide open to the sweetness of the day, his fire dancing and crackling with good cheer, and his book in his hand. Ah, the delicious idleness and rest. No disorders to heal, no bones to mend, no problems to solve. A little sipping of his tea, a little reading of his book, a little luxuriating in the warmth and the pleasant odor of pine boughs burning, a little dreamy reverie, watching through the open door the changing lights on the hills, and listening to an occasional bird note, liquid and sweet. The hour drew near to noon, and the sky lightened, and a rift of deep blue stretched across the open space before him. Lazily he speculated as to how he was to get his provisions brought up to him, and when and how he might get his mail, but laughed to think how little he cared for a hundred and one things which had filled his life and dogged his days ere this. Had he reached Nirvana? Nay, he could still hunger and thirst. A footstep was heard without, and a figure appeared in his doorway, quietly standing, making no move to enter. It was Cassandra, and he was pleased. "'My first visitor!' he exclaimed. "'Come in, come in. I'll make a place for you to sit in a minute.' He shoved the couch away from before the fire, and removing a pair of trousers and a heap of hose from one of his splint-bottomed chairs, he threw them in a corner and placed it before the hearth. "'You walked, didn't you? And your feet are wet, of course. Sit here and dry them.' She pushed back her sunbonnet and held out to him a quaint little basket made of willow withs, which she carried, but she took no step forward. Although her lips smiled a fleeting wraith of a smile that came and went in an instant, he thought her eyes looked troubled as she lifted them to his face. He took the basket and lifted the cover. "'I brought you some partridges,' she said simply. There lay three quail, and a large sweet potato, roasted in the ashes on their hearth as he had seen the corn pone baked the evening before, and a few round white cakes, which he afterwards learned were beaten biscuit, all warm from the fire. "'How am I ever to repay you people for your kindness to me?' he said. "'Come in and dry your feet. Never mind the mud. See how I've tracked it in all the morning? Come.' He led her to the fire and replenished it, while she sat passively looking down on the hearth as if she scarcely heeded him. 
not knowing how to talk to her or what to do with her, he busied himself trying to bring a semblance of order to the cabin, occasionally dropping a remark to which she made no response. Then he also relapsed into silence, and the minutes dragged, age-long minutes they seemed to him. In his efforts at order, he spread his rug over the couch, tossed a crimson cushion on it and sundry articles beneath it to get them out of his way, then occupied himself with his book, while vainly trying to solve the riddle which his enigmatical caller presented to his imagination. All at once she rose, sought out a few dishes from the cupboard, and, taking a neatly smoothed coarse cloth from the basket, spread it over one end of the table and arranged thereon his dinner. Quietly David watched her, following her example of silence until forced to speak. Finally he decided to question her, if only he could think of questions which would not trespass on her private affairs, when at last she broke the stillness. "'I can't find any coffee. I ought to have brought some. I'll go fetch some if you'll eat now. Your dinner'll get cold.' He showed her how he had made tea and was in no need of coffee. "'We'll throw this out and make fresh,' he said gaily. "'Then you must have a cup with me. Why, you have enough to eat here for three people.' She seemed weary and sad, and he determined to probe far enough to elicit some confidence, but the more fluent he became, the more effectively she withdrew from him. "'See here,' he said at last. "'Sit by the table with me, and I will eat to your heart's content. I'll prepare you a cup of tea as I do my own, and then I want you to drink it. Come.' She yielded. His way of saying, come, seemed like a command to be obeyed. Now, that is more like. He began his dinner with a relish. Won't you share this game with me? It is fine, you know. He could not think her silent from embarrassment, for her poise seemed undisturbed except for the anxious look in her eyes. He determined to fathom the cause, and since no finesse availed, there remained but one way. The direct question. What is it? he said kindly. Tell me the trouble, and let me help you. She looked full into his eyes then, and her lips quivered. Something rose in her throat, and she swallowed helplessly. It was so hard for her to speak. The trouble had struck deeper than he dreamed. It is a trouble, isn't it? Can't you tell it to me? Yes. I reckon there isn't any trouble worse than ours. No, I reckon there's nothing worse. Why, Miss Cassandra? Because it's sin, and— and the wages of sin is death. Her tone was hopeless, and the sadness of it went to his heart. Is it whiskey? he asked. Yes, it's whiskey stilling, and worse, it's— She turned deathly white, too sad to weep, she still held control of her voice. It's a heap worse. Don't try to tell me what it is, he cried. Only tell me how I may help you. It's not your sin, surely so you don't have to bear it. It's not mine, but I do have to bear it. I wish my bearing it was all. Tell me, if, if a man has done such a sin, is it right to help him get away? If it is that big brother of yours whom I saw last night, I can't believe he has done anything so very wicked. You say it is not the whiskey? Maybe it was the whiskey first, then— I don't know exactly how came it. I reckon he doesn't himself. I, He's not my brother, not rightly, but he has been the same as such. They telegraphed me to come home quick. 
Bishop Towers told me a little, all he knew, but he didn't know what all was it, only some wrong to call the officers and set them after Frail. Poor Frail. He, he told me himself last evening. She paused again, and the pallor slowly left her face, and the red surged into her cheeks and mounted to the waves of her heavy hair. It is Frail, then, who is in trouble, and you wish me to help him get away. She looked down and was silent. But I am a stranger and know nothing about the country. He pushed his chair away from the table and leaned back, regarding her intently. Oh, I am afraid for him. She put her hand to her throat and turned away her face from his searching eyes in shame. I prefer not to know what he has done. Just explain to me your plan and how I can help. You know better than I. I can't understand how comes that I can tell you. You're a stranger to all of us, and yet it seems like it is right. If I could get some clothes nobody has ever seen frail wear, if— I could make him look different from a mountain boy. Maybe he could get to some town down the mountain and find work. But now they would meet up with him before he was halfway there. Thring rose and began pacing the room. Is there any hurry? he demanded, stopping suddenly before her. Yes. Then why have you waited all this time to tell me? She lifted her eyes to his in silence, and he knew well that she had not spoken because she could not and that had he not ventured with his direct questions, she would have left him, carrying her burden with her, as hopelessly silent as when she came. He sat beside her again and gently urged her to tell him without further delay all she had in her mind. You feel quite sure that if he could get down the mountainside without being seen, he would be safe. Where do you mean to send him? You don't think he would try to return? Why, no, I reckon not. If I... Her face flamed and she drew on her bonnet, hiding the crimson flush in its deep shadow. She knew that without the promise he had asked, the boy would as surely return as that the sun would continue to rise and set. He must stay, she spoke desperately and hurriedly. If he can just make out to stay long enough to learn a little, how to live, and will keep away from bad men, if I... He knows enough to make mean corn liquor now, but he never was bad. He has always been different, and he's awful smart. I can't think how he came to change so. Taking the empty basket with her, she walked toward the door and David followed her. Thank you for that good dinner, he said. Aunt Sally fetched the partridges. Her old man got them for mother, and she said you sure ought to have half. Sally said the sheriff had gone back up the mountain, and I'm afraid he'll come to our place again this evening. Likely they're breaking up frail still now. Well, that will be a good deed, won't it? The huge bonnet had hid her face from him, but now she lifted her eyes frankly to his, with a flash of radiance through her tears. I reckon, was all she said. Are they likely to come up here, do you think, those men? Not hardly. They would have to search on foot here. It's out of their way. Only no place on the mountain is safe for frail now. Send him to me quickly, then. I have cast my lot with you mountain people for some time to come, and your cause shall be mine. She paused at the door with grateful words on her lips unuttered. Don't stop for thanks, Miss Cassandra. They are wasted between us. You have opened your doors to me, a stranger, and that is enough. Hurry, don't grieve, and see here. 
I may not be able to do anything, but I'll try. And if I can't get down tonight, won't you come again in the morning and tell me all about it? Instantly, he thought better of his request. Yet, who was here to criticize? He laughed as he thought how firmly the world and its conventions held him. Sweet, simple-hearted child that she was, why, indeed, should she not come? Still, he called after her. If you are too busy, send Hoyle. I may be down to see your mother anyway. She paused an instant in her hurried walk. I'll be right glad to come if I can help you anyway. He stood watching her until she passed below his view, as her long, easy steps took her rapidly on, although she seemed to move slowly. Then he went back to his fire, and her words repeated themselves insistently in his mind. I'll be right glad to come if I can help you any way. Aunt Sally was seated in the chimney corner smoking when Cassandra returned. Where is he? she cried. He couldn't said a minute. He was that restless. He allowed he'd go back up to the rock where you found him last evening. Without a word, Cassandra turned and fled up the steep toward the head of the fall. Every moment she knew was precious. Frail met her halfway down and took her hand, leading her as he had been used to do when she was his little sister, and listened to her plans docilely enough. I mean you to go down to Farrington, to Bishop Towers. He will give you work. She had not mentioned Thring. Frail laughed. Don't, Frail. How can you laugh? I really ain't laughing, Cass. Seems like you forget how can I get down the mountain. But I reckon I'll try if you say so. Then she explained how the doctor had sent for him to come up there quickly, and how he would help him. You must go now, Frail, you hear? Now! Again he laughed, bitterly this time. Yes, I reckon he'll be right glad to help me get away from you. I'll go myself in my own way. Under the holly tree they had paused, and suddenly she feared lest the boy at her side return to his mood of the evening before. She seized his hand again, and hurried him farther up the steep. Come, come, she cried. I'll go with you, Frail. No, nah, you won't go with me neither, he said stubbornly, drawing back. Frail, she pleaded, here to me. I'm listening. Frail, I'm afraid. They may be on their way now, for all we know they may be right now. I've done got used to fair now. It don't hurt none. Only one thing hurts now. I've been up to see Dr. Thring, and he's promised he'll fix you up some way so that if anybody does see you, they, they'll think you belong somewhere else and never guess who you be. Frail, go. He held her, with his arm about her waist, half carrying her with him, instead of allowing her to move her own free gait, and she tried vainly with her fingers to pull his hands away, but his muscles were like iron under her touch. He felt her helplessness and liked it. Her voice shook as she pleaded with him. Oh, Frail, hear to me, she wailed. I'll hear to you if you'll hear to me. Seems like I've lost my fear now. I ain't caring no more. If I should see the sheriff this minute, and he were putting his rope round my neck right now, I wouldn't care that one thing, just one thing. I'd walk straight down to hell for it. I reckon I've done that. But I'd walk till I dropped, and work till I died for it. He stood still a moment, and again she essayed to move his hands, but he only held her closer. Oh, hurry, Frail, I'm afraid. Oh, Frail, don't. Be you fear to me, Cass? 
You know that, Frale. Leave go and hear to me. Be you feared enough to give me your promise, Cass? Take your hand off me, Frale. We'll go back. I allow they might as well take me first as last. I ain't no heart left in me. I don't care for that there doctor man helping me nohow. He choked. Leave me go, and I'll give you promise for promise, Frale. I can't make out is it sin or not, but if God can forgive and love, when you turn and seek him, the Bible do say so, Frale, but, but seem like you don't repent your deed whilst you look at me like that way. She paused, trembling. If you could be sorry like you ought to be, Frale, and turn your heart, I could die for that. He still held her, but lifted one shaking hand above his head. Before God, I promise. What, Frale? Say what you promise. He still held his hand high. All you ask of me, Cass, tell me word by word and I'll promise fair. Will you repent, Frale? Yes. You will not drink? I will not drink. You will heed when your own heart tells you the right way? I will heed when my heart tells me the way. It will be the way to you, Cass. Oh, don't say it that way, Frail. Now say, so help me God, and don't think of me whilst you say it. Put your hand on mine, Cass. Lift it up and say with me that word. She placed her palm on his uplifted palm. So help me God, they said together. Then, with streaming tears, she put her arms about his neck and gently drew his face down to her own. I'll go back now, Frail, and you do all I've said. Go quick. I'll write Bishop Towers, and he'll watch out for you and find you work. Let Dr. Thring help you. He sure is a good man. Oh, if you only could write. I'll learn. You'll have a heap more to learn than you guess. I've been there, and I know. Don't give up, Frail, and... And stay. I ain't going to give up with your promise here, Cass. Kiss me. She did so, and he slowly released her, looking back as he walked away. Oh, hurry, Frail. Don't look back. It's a bad omen. She turned, and without one backward glance, descended the mountain. End of chapter 5. Recording by Haley Pereira.